Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or whenever you're watching this. Um, how about good day? Um, my name is Marcel Berard. Uh, Dave asked me to fill in for him this week, and I'll be doing Acts chapter 7, I'm hoping to cover verses 1 through 16. But before I do that, I'd like to do an overview of the book of Acts up until where we're at right now. And if we go back and we remember back in Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus, his resurrected. He spends uh, about 30 days teaching the disciples and sharing things about the kingdom of God. And he talks about the upcoming coming of the Holy Spirit, and which he says, and this is one of the key verses in Acts, and it's also one of the key verses, I think, for uh, Christians, is, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus proceeds to ascend into heaven. In chapter 2, the disciples are waiting for the day of Pentecost. They're in an upper room. The Spirit descends upon them with the sound of rushing wind and with tongues of fire that descend upon them. This makes such a commotion that about a crowd of three, but a, a big crowd shows up. Peter seizes on this opportunity and gives uh, one of the first speeches or sermons in Acts, and 3,000 are saved that day. And one of the interesting things I noted is when we were, our small group is also going through the book of Acts, one of the interesting things that I noted there was Peter preaches his sermon, and when he gets to the end, he, you know, he tells them who Jesus was, how he fulfilled scripture, and that... Um, the, the Jews were basically responsible for killing him and kind of leaves it there. And then the people in the crowd who are convicted are like, well, what do we do now? And then Peter's like, oh, yeah, repent and believe. And, but you'll notice later on Peter kind of gets the hang of it and does it a little bit better and doesn't forget to leave that part out. Um, so we have 3,000 joined the church that day. Many of them are non-Hebrew-speaking Jews from the lands that surround Israel from when they had been dispersed through different dispersions um, so we have local Jews, or what I would call, we'll call them native Jews, people that are from the land, and we have the foreign dispersed Jews, or Hellenistic Jews as they're called, that are all living together, they're eating together, they're staying, um, and their great time is being had by all. Many were being saved and added to the group. One of the interesting things about all this was that when they had all gathered, all the Jews were gathered at Passover when Jesus was crucified. It was not mandatory, but it was a good suggestion if you were a good Jew to try to make it to Jerusalem for Passover. So this is the reason why we had so many non-native Jews that were in Jerusalem. And it appears they did not want to go home because they were part of this group and they were learning about Jesus and they were hanging with the apostles and everything was great. And then we go on to chapter 4. In chapter 4, Peter and John are t um, taken before the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Peter and John go, they're preaching in the temple on a regular basis. There's a lame man who's there who'd been lame from birth. Uh, he asked them for money, and we all know the kids' song, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Uh, Peter heals him, the guy is like jumping around, and he's making a big commotion, and everybody's, hey, isn't this the guy that was lame? And they're a big crowd gathers around that, and another 5,000 people get saved that day. Um, this, however, does not go unnoticed, because in uh, chapter 4, Peter and John are then brought before the Sanhedrin for speaking of the resurrection. 
And one of the reasons they're brought there is the Sanhedrin at the time was run predominantly by the Sadducees. And one of the Sadducees' main beliefs was that they did not believe in the resurrection. And here we have these people going around preaching about the resurrection, and they don't believe in the resurrection, and, you know, it's getting a little inconvenient. Um, They're warned not to preach uh, in Jesus' name anymore, and they're threatened if they do so. Peter responds to him that we must obey God and not men. And the funny part is, is that in the Sadducees' minds, they thought they kind of were God's representatives. They go back and call the church. They call for a church-wide prayer meeting, um, and then they pray. And I find the interesting part in here is they pray not that the persecution would stop, but that they would have strength to continue in it and to, uh, to continue to move forward and share Christ. Then in chapter 5, we have uh, Ananias and Sapphira conspired a lie to the apostles, to the church, and to God, and it doesn't go well for them, if you remember the story. And here we see um, prong two of a three-prong strategy that, um, as they like to say in the Bible project, the Satan, as opposed to Satan, because an interesting little note I learned from that is that the actual term Satan isn't a proper name, it's actually just a description. And I find it interesting that whoever it is that is the Satan doesn't get, uh, God does not dignify them by using their name, he just kind of gives them a title, the accuser. Um, The enemy, our enemy's ploy. Number one, he likes to use persecution. Number two, moral corruption, as we see with Ananias and Sapphira. And then number three, distraction from true purpose. And all throughout history, this is what he has been doing over and over and over again, and he will continue to do it. And one fun part was uh, I remember reading, I can't remember which book it was in, but in uh, uh, Paul was talking about how we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes, and so he doesn't really describe what they are. And I had like I was always like, well, yeah, yeah, I am ignorant. It would be kind of nice if you told me what his schemes were, so I would be prepared for it. But um, in reading a uh, commentary on this chapter of Acts chapter five, when I was teaching it for our small group, the uh, I believe it was um, one of one of the commentators had mentioned he talked about this. This was the Satan's ploy: the persecution, moral corruption, and distraction from true purpose. And I find it interesting how when God was starting the church, Satan tried, the Satan <laughs> tried to get Ananias and Sapphira to bring moral corruption into the church, to bring hypocrisy into the church. We see a similar thing when God was um, starting the, the uh, Israelite nation. He was bringing them out. There was, um, I think of the Korah, I think his name was, who the guy who kept... The thing that he had the, the stuff in his tent from the battle that they had. and then, uh, So God dealt swiftly. And when, when God is starting a new thing, we see God dealing swiftly and quickly with the problem. Um, and also, we also see the, our enemy moves swiftly, swiftly and quickly to try to get in and ruin it as quick as he can. So when number two, the moral corruption doesn't work, back to chapter five, the enemy ratchets up number one, persecution. The apostles are doing so many miracles, they can't be ignored. We are told the high priest and the Sadducees are filled with jealousy. And this is a thing we want to remember when we get to chapter 7, because we're going to see this rear its ugly head again. That Now that they arrest the apostles, and they put all the... Before it was Peter and Paul, 
Now they're arresting all the apostles and putting them in jail. Then they're freed uh, miraculously, and they go right back to the temple to preach. They are then brought before the Sanhedrin again, and Gamaliel gives a great speech, which is completely disregarded, and now the apostles are flogged. See ploy number one again. Then they went out rejoicing and continued to teach in the temple and in homes. And I don't know, you put yourself in the the, uh, Sanhedrin's shoes. I mean, it's like, what do we got to do to shut these guys up? Um, In chapter 6, we start to see dissension in the community of believers. There is a prejudice rising its ugly head between the native Jews and the foreign Jews. See ploy number 2 again, moral corruption, which sets the stage for ploy number 3, which is distraction. The apostles, when they hear it, when it's brought to the apostles' attention, they are aware of the time suck it would be to try to regulate the food distribution among the thousands of people and the different home churches that are going on. It would just take up all their time. They would have no longer have time to be devoted to uh, prayer and to the apostles' teachings. So the apostles make the decision to bring this problem to the whole body of believers, who are 10,000-plus at this point. And they come to a decision. They, they, they gather, they bring forth the names of seven people that are going to handle the distribution of food. And here we get our first deacon board, which was, handled, which was tasked with the handling of the, daily, the day-to-day, or I should say the day-to-day operations of the church. We are told large numbers of priests at this time begin to join the believers. Now, it was one thing if you had a bunch of uneducated yokels who want to follow this teaching, but now we have priests joining this group and giving it legitimacy. Stephen, a um, most likely Hellenistic Jew by his name, begins doing wonders and signs among the people. Up to this point, it had only been the apostles, all of which who are native-born Jews. So now we have a Hellenistic Jew, not from the land, who starts doing signs and wonders among the people. Um, The Spirit is expanding boundaries and minds. Some of the Jews from the Hellenistic synagogue begin disputing with Stephen, but they can't stand up against his wisdom or against the spirit working in him. They then get people to lie about him, and he is brought before the Sanhedrin. And I want to just go ahead and read for you right now Acts chapter uh, 6, 11 through 15 to uh, set the stage for that. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They incited the people, the elders, and the experts in the law. Then they approached Stephen, seized him, and brought him before the council. They brought forward false witnesses who said, This man does not stop saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face was like the face of an angel. So now we're going to jump into chapter 7. And this is uh, Stephen's speech is the longest speech in uh, the book of Acts. It It is in effect an argument against some of the false traditions held by the Jews of the day. One probably held by Stephen before he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a belief that was strongly held among Jews about God's glory and presence. This belief was strongly linked to the land and to the temple or the tabernacle. And on top of this, we have traditions from the forefathers that had become equal with God's word. If you recall, Jesus 
kind of spoke against that quite often uh, and accusing the Pharisees of this, of following traditions of men over and above God's word, even superseding the written word. The belief being dealt with in Stephen's speech is that God is tied to the temple and to the land. The following verses I'm going to go through are going to show where this idea comes from. The first of which is in Exodus 29 in verses 42 through 46. And the beauty of this format is you can pause, look it up, and then follow along. 29, 42 through 46. This will be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you and speak with you there. There I will meet with the Israelites, and I will be set apart as holy by my glory. So I, will set up, so I will set apart as holy the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will set apart as holy Aaron and his sons, and that they may minister as priests to me. I will reside among... I will reside among the Israelites, and I will be their God, and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, so that I, so that I may reside among them. I am the, their God. And then next would be Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But when the cloud was lifted up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their journeys. But if the cloud was not lifted up, they would not journey further until the the day it was lifted up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, but fire would be on it at night, in plain view of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. First Kings, uh, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Once the priests left the holy place, a cloud filled the Lord's temple. And the pre- this is the, uh, after the temple was built, and the uh, presence of the Lord comes, up, comes upon the temple. Once the priests had left the holy place, a cloud filled the Lord's temple. The priests could not carry out their duties because of the cloud of the Lord filled, and I'm sorry, because the cloud of the Lord's glory filled the temple. And then lastly, but not exhaustively, uh, Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. Then he brought me to the gate that faced toward the east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming out of the east. The sound was like that of rushing water. The earth radiated his glory. It was like a vision I saw when he came to destroy the city, and the vision I saw by the Kibar River. I threw myself face down. The glory of the Lord came came into the temple by way of the gate that faces east. Then a wind lifted me up and brought me to the inner court. I watched the glory of the Lord filling the temple. So we see here in these passages that God is being tied to the tabernacle or the temple. That God's presence, his glory is tied to the tabernacle and the temple. And what happened over the years was the belief that God could only be interacted with in and through the temple. That there was also a belief that if you were a Jew living outside the land, you were second class. God would only reveal himself in the temple or in the land. Now, there's also a tradition that came up that if you died outside of the land, 
when the resurrection occurred, you would have to make a long, difficult journey back to the land in order to be resurrected. And I'm not sure exactly how this was supposed to happen, but I guess it was supposed to be a very unpleasant thing to the point where Jews made it a very big deal to, make, to come back and be buried in the land. If you recall the story of Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel, when they all go down to Egypt and live with Joseph, one of the things he wants to be made sure of, and Joseph also, is that the bones, when they go back into the land, are brought back to be buried there because they had kind of that belief also that there was something special about being buried in the land and the resurrection happening there first. Um, so the idea that Stephen, an outsider, a Hellenistic Jew, was in communication with God and was revealing things of God went against their tradition and their view of how God works in the world. To make matters worse, he's performing miracles to back up his claim or giving credence to what he said, a lot like Jesus before him uh, doing miracles and making claims about what God would say. And as a side note, um, another path I had considered on the teaching for this morning was just to go through all the parallels between Jesus' trial and death and Stephen's trial and death. And just as a homework assignment, you should go through and see how many you can find. There's quite a few, actually. So the members of the synagogue of the Jewish people from abroad tried confronting Stephen, and, this, and they ended up having to resort to lying. They said Stephen is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Sound familiar? He's hauled before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. Sound familiar? They accuse him of speaking against the temple and against the law. Sound familiar? And um, here is the beginnings of Stephen's defense in Acts 17, uh, Acts 7, verses 1 through 6. And I just want to make a mention on what uh, Stephen's trying to do here. What he's going to be trying to do is, is any good argument is you try to make a big tent, right? You try to make, make friends with as many people as you can and make commonality so that people will hear you. Especially when somebody's kind of like upset with you, you want to try to draw common bonds, like where, where we have things in common. <coughs> Excuse me. And then later on, uh, which I won't be able to get into this time, Peter will kind of, or not Peter, Stephen will finish with the punchline, but you'll get that maybe next week or the week after. Um, I want to go through and just read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Then the high priest said, Are these things true? So he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our forefather Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your country and from your relatives and come to the land I will show you. Then he went out from the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God made him move to this country where you now live. He did not give any of it to him, for an inheritance, not even a foot of ground. Yet God promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though Abraham as yet had no child. But God spoke as follows. Your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign country whose citizens will enslave them and mistreat them for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, said God, and after these things they will come out of there, and they will worship me in this place. Then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, so that he became the father of Isaac and circumcised him when he was eight days old. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. 
The patriarchs, because they were jealous of Joseph, remember the jealousy thing, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles and granted him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Then a famine occurred throughout Egypt and Canaan, causing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there for the first time. On their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers again, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. So Joseph sent a message and invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come, 75 people, all in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died there, along with all our ancestors, out of the land. And there their bones were later moved to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a certain sum of money. So we see again here the idea that you died outside of the land, you've got to get back. Um, and it's from the patriarchs, what are we going to do? For a certain sum of money and from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So, in verses 1 through 6, we see Stephen trying to build common ground by reminding them that Abraham, that he is a son of Abraham also, that all Jews, no matter where they are, are sons of Abraham. Note also, he points out where Abraham spoke to him originally. It was not in the land. It was in uh, Ur of the Chaldees, out in Mesopotamia, nowhere near the land of Israel. And that's where God first spoke to Abraham and initiated his plan. It was not bound just to the land. But it was actually even in a pagan land that God spoke to him. Then God moves Abraham to the land you now live in, but didn't give him any of it, but as an inheritance to his descendants, his audience, the people that Stephen were speaking to were the ones that inherited the land, not Abraham himself. He then speaks of the covenant of circumcision, and in 400 years in Egypt, then of Isaac and of the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Now we start to see what Stephen is up to here. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. What was the Sanhedrin? They were jealous of Stephen and jealous of the apostles. Joseph is sold and no longer in the land. But who was with him? God was. So Joseph is rejected by the patriarchs not unlike Jesus being rejected by Israel, right? The 12 tribes reject him. Um, God was with Joseph when he was in Egypt, not in the land. And God was with Jesus even when he was in Egypt and not in the land. Um, with God's guidance, Joseph saves his people, not unlike what Jesus did. The revered ancestors of those in the Sanhedrin, and also, and, um, which are the... So, with God's guidance, Joseph saves his people, the revered ancestors of those in the Sanhedrin. Also notice, Joseph was not recognized the first time that Israel saw him. And what I mean by Israel is when the patriarchs all came down, they didn't recognize who Joseph was, which is not unlike the first time that Jesus came to the nation Israel, they didn't recognize who he was. And and when they saw him, but they did recognize him when they saw him the second time, which is what the Bible says that when Jesus comes again, that Israel will recognize him as their Messiah that time. 
So we were seeing a, a little line being woven here by Stephen about linking Jesus with Joseph and Jesus with Israel. So God saves his people by moving them to Egypt. God is moving. So God saves his people by moving them to Egypt, out of the land to Egypt. God is um, interacting with his people outside of the land, outside of the temple. There is no temple at this point with no high priest. This is how nation Israel is formed and has grown before God moves to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Stephen then continues to the rest of the chapter to show how God used Moses and outside of the land of the temple, and even when they had a tabernacle, even when they had the tabernacle, they had God's presence in the tabernacle. Stephen's going to talk about how the people were still rebellious and still uh, not following their God the way they should and say they do. In summary here, Stephen uses the heroes of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 patriarchs, Moses, and Solomon, to show the Sanhedrin that God was not constrained by their rules of how God can work. And then just to read from the very end of uh, chapter 7 there, where, where God says, Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? God is not criticizing the temple. What God is doing is he's criticizing those who make too much of it. Stephen here is trying to get the people to see that they've, they've bound God up. They've, they're trying to... Uh, they can't see God moving because God's not moving in the way that they expect him to move or think that he should move. So, in summary, and to wrap this up, my question to us is this. What tradition or idea of how God can or will not operate is causing us to reject what he might be doing? How have I put God in a box? A box I may, might even have a verse or two to lock it shut. Let me pray. Lord, I just ask that you would open your word up to us, that um, you would move upon us to have the desire to spend time in it, to search it, and that we would hold this book up to us as the mirror you intended it to be, that it would reveal our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would show each one of us, what, where have we put you in a box? Where have I decided this is what you will do, this is what you won't do, and I'm missing out on something you might be doing? Father, I ask this for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.